All right, if you have your Bibles, if you could open them to Nehemiah 9, that's where we're going to be for the day today. Um, Like Pastor Josh said, I'm Brandon. Uh, I'm an intern, and uh, this is actually the first time I've ever been in front of a congregation. So um, to say I'm nervous would be a complete understatement. Uh, So please bear with me as I uh, do the best I can to make it through this. Um, So uh, like you said, uh, my wife Helena and I... um, relatively new to the church, and we are uh, just so thankful for uh, just the arms that you welcomed us with. Um, So let's begin. So if you know anything about Elena and I, um, we are very impatient people. Uh, When it comes to something like uh, redecorating or remodeling our house, uh, that's, it doesn't take much time for us to pull a trigger on something. So let's just take an imaginary trip with me to Ikea. Okay. Now, obviously, this is, or this is not a true story, um, but we're just taking an imagination uh, joyride through Ikea. So if we were looking for a desk, and we are going through Ikea trying to pick one out, and knowing me, I'm going to find the simplest one, because who wants to spend much time building an Ikea desk? So we find the simple one, we purchase it, and we get home. And Elena, in her excitement does not want me to wait till the next day. We want to get it done right then. So I open up the box, pull all the pieces out, and I think, well, isn't it basically just a puzzle anyway? So I push the directions off to the side, prop the picture up, because that's kind of, you know, the idea of a puzzle, and I start putting each piece together. Well, as you could probably assume, if we take about 25 minutes at best, uh, probably missing some parts, and there's some pieces laying around. Well, where are these supposed to go? So we open the instruction manual, and we realize that, like step two, we completely made a mistake. So we go back through and take it apart piece by piece. Then, with Elena begging for me to actually look at the instructions, I open the instruction book, and we go step by step to the point where we get a finished product the way it was intended to be. Now, you may be wondering, where is he going with this? We'll get there, okay? So the life of Israel, which for those who have been going through the F260 plan, you have seen Israel constantly coming back to God, finding something they thought would be better, and going back away from God. So building an Ikea desk is almost like the life of Israel because Israel skipped the instruction part which would be the word of God. And when they skip the instruction part, they're missing the step-by-step process of what it means to be a follower of God. And then once they get through understanding, hey, we need the word of God, we need our confession, our step-by-step process, then that brings them the point to worship the way that God intended it to be. So in a summary, what I want to kind of point you to today is three things. Everything that we do needs to start with the word of God. And after that, we need to understand our step-by-step procedures, which would be confession. And third, when we understand our need for the word of God and our need for confession, then we can worship God the way he intended it. So Ezra and Nehemiah was originally written as one book, which I think might have been mentioned a couple weeks ago. So what you read in Ezra and what, we're, what you have read this last week in Nehemiah is a continued story. 
So when Jerusalem fell to the power of Babylon, many of the Israelites were then taken into captivity. So while Ezra covers our first two exiles, Nehemiah covers the final one, the third one. So Nehemiah at this time is the leader. He's been given the governor um, title from King Artaxerxes. And when they finished building the wall, which is the whole reason he went back um, to Jerusalem, was to build the wall. They begin to celebrate what they call the Feast of Tabernacles. So two days following the feast, Nehemiah tells us this story. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Nehemiah 9, 1 through 6. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshebaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone, and you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. May God bless the reading of his word. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for your word and how much it reveals your nature to us and who you are. Lord, I pray that as we dig deeper into this passage that you use me to bring something you want this congregation to hear. And the Lord, and Lord, may anything that is good that comes from me be only for your glory. Lord, may we exalt you above all else, all blessing and all praise. May your name be known across all nations. We thank you for your freedom that you've given us to worship and gather together around your word. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. So today I want to show you how Nehemiah 9, 1 through 6 focuses on, again, three things that are essential to your faith. The word of God, confession, and worship. When we genuinely confess our sins, we are able to enjoy worship the way that God intended it to be. So in order, let's first look at the word of God. So as you know, the Bible consists of 66 books and is written by around 40 different authors in a span of 1,500 years. But leading up to this point in the history of the Bible, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, was the only accepted true word of God. Now, today, the Jewish people still use the Torah as the word of God and as their holy book. So throughout Israel's history, they had gone astray, and then they would open the word of God and read from it. And following that would be confession, repentance, and even a revival. But this would only last for a short amount of time. Because, as you know, it wouldn't take long for them to go right back to where they just were. So the word of the Lord mattered to Israel. Just like the word of the Lord matters here. They preached it in a way that was understandable. And I pray you find that the case here as well. Hagerstown Church firmly believes that the word matters. And we let that drive every aspect of our church as much as humanly possible. But the word of the Lord did not Stop with the nation of Israel. The word of the Lord mattered throughout the entire Old Testament. In the Old Testament books, they quote back to the first five books. And it also doesn't stop with just them. 
New Testament authors flavor their letters with different types or different uh, sites of the Old Testament. And even Jesus. Jesus uses 25 different Old Testament books of the 39 that he quotes throughout his sermons. The word matters. The Torah was the testament of the binding covenant made between Israel and Yahweh. This is why Nehemiah spends so much time in his book talking about the importance of the word of God. So when we look at Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3, it makes it clear that when the people were gathered together, much would be accomplished. Israel gathered in a posture of humility. They were fasting, which is abstaining from food. They were in uncomfortable sackcloth, which was a garment made of like goat or camel hair. And they placed dirt on their heads as a sign of their sorrow. They then dedicated themselves to a time of prayer. Prayer is seen multiple times throughout the book of Nehemiah, which is why scholars give him the title, a man of prayer. The book of Nehemiah opens with prayer. And that's where Nehemiah is praying for a revival for Jerusalem and to Israel. And they also dedicated themselves to the reading of the word of God. They spent three hours reading the word of God alone. That is not a way today to grow a church. If you're trying to take what they tell you, this is what you need to do to grow a church, they would tell you keep it at 30 minutes or so. But they spent three whole hours. Israel craved the word of God. Israel also stood up during this reading as a sign of reverence. So there was respect for the word of God. They knew that when the Bible was open, God was using that to speak to them. But they didn't stop with just a quick little passage. They spent, again, a full three hours just reading and reading the word of God. Now, it's pretty hot outside today. So if I were to tell you, hey, let's all stand up and we're going to take all our chairs and I'm going to finish this outside. Most of you probably would not be very happy with that. But during this time, they're, we're talking like 82 degrees and they spent six full hours, because three hours was with the word of God, and three hours was in confession and worship, in 82 degree weather, just praising God for who he was. The third thing that Israel expected for when they opened the word of God was conviction from their sins. Israel knew their brokenness and their wickedness. God's word exposed to them how broken and how sinful they were. They knew that the word of the Lord would set their paths straight. And guide them back to what righteous living is supposed to look like. Think of a psalm that you might know. It's widely known. In Psalm 119, 105, and 106. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Israel again was fully aware of their sin and wickedness. Which brought them to the point of their fasting. The wearing of the sackcloth and their heads being covered in dirt. But this was just the beginning. Because after the word of God, they will spend the next three hours talking about their confession and their worship. So when I was trying to think of something that this could illustrate, I was thinking about a pilot. And when pilots are flying, if something were to happen with their plane, such as like a need for an emergency landing, like uh, engine shuts off, they run out of fuel, they have this binder that is tucked away that is called the emergency procedure binder. And so as they are desperately heading down towards the ground, which is how Nehemiah would have seen this, he sees Israel constantly moving further and further away. He opens the word of God as the guide, as this is how we come back to where we're supposed to be. 
Now, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that you only need to use the word of the Lord when you are in a crashing scenario. Because obviously we want to use every day and spend every day in the word of the Lord. And technically, if we want to be like that, we could also say that every single second of your life, you are crashing further and further away from God. So the word matters here at Hagerstown Church. This is not a phrase we say just so we can have some sort of catchy phrase to say whenever we think it fits. It actually matters. And revival doesn't come to Hagerstown until we as a community of believers understand our need for the word of God in prayer. When we read the word, we should not do so just to mark it off of our checklist, but we should do so because we know that God is using that to speak to us in our lives. I think of 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, which says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We should also strive to memorize scripture. Now, if you're involved with a D group here, you know that we place emphasis on memorizing scripture every week. But I want to challenge you to think about why you actually memorize scripture. Now, if you're like me, sometimes I simply memorize it because I don't want to be the only one at D group who doesn't have it memorized. And in that, I might miss the entire point of why we memorize scripture. Because when we memorize scripture, we realize our need for the word of God. And in times of hurt, or in times of sadness, and we need a word of encouragement, your memorization comes into play there. So when we understand our desperate need for the word of God, naturally born from that is our need for genuine confession. And when God is revealed to us in the Bible, and we are faced with our sinful reality, confession is born out of that. And because of it, it reveals our need for him. So the next point I want to talk to you about is confession. Confession can be defined as our admission of guilt or sin. It is the point in your life when you realize that you are so far away from God or that you can't even compare to who God is. And when we look at the story of Nehemiah and Israel, they were so heartbroken for their sin that they didn't just stop with confessing their own sins. They confessed the sins of the fathers that came before them. Nehemiah is pointing the people back to God. If we had time and we read through Nehemiah 9, 6 through 32, you will see constant remarks of how he's drawing them back to God. He's constantly reminding them of all the things that God had done for them. God's creation acts, God's guidance in their wondering, God's appointment of leaders, and so much more. But there are two important things that as you read through Nehemiah 9 that you will see in terms of Nehemiah and Israel's confession. Number one is they never blamed the people before them. So much of what they were doing, again, is seen throughout the history of Israel. They could have easily looked and said, well, God, you gave us fathers who didn't follow you. So how can you blame us? They didn't say that. They owned up to it. And secondly, they did not blame any outside circumstance. So they didn't say, well, God, if you wouldn't have let Babylon take us into captivity, we wouldn't be here. They didn't say that. Instead, they owned up to their sin and they owned up to their own mistakes. Excuse me. So if you are sitting here wondering, well, what does Israel have anything to do with me? 
Well, I'm here to tell you that it has everything to do with you, and it has everything to do with me. In this story, we are Israel. We have failed to see God for who he is. We fail to follow in God's commands and laws. Just like Israel, we get so caught up in the worship of other things outside of God himself that we start placing our praise and our worship in things that in reality are empty. So later today, I encourage you to read chapter 9, 6 through 31, and you will find how we constantly fall short and sin. So here are some ways that as I did the reading this week, that I want uh, to point out to you that we fall short. Number one, we fail to rejoice in God's grace and love. When something doesn't go the way we planned or the way we expected, we instantly point the finger at God, or we are tempted to point the finger at God. Number two, we fail to follow and seek God's guidance. So many times in our lives, we get stuck in this thing of, well, I know what's best for myself which in reality is crazy if you think about who God is, because God knows everything. So he knows what's best for your life. Three, we fail to obey God's commands. Four, we fail to rejoice in the miracles that happen around us. We almost have a pessimist view sometimes of things. I mean, there are so many miracles every single day that we encounter. Five is we fail short to worship God alone. So often our spouse, our family, materials, Take that spot from God, where we almost start to place things as most important. And six, we we tend to fall into a cultural Christianity, forgetting the significance behind our faith, or why we even do the things that we do. I mean, communion is such a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. And sometimes it's so easy to forget that because we might look at it as a snack in the middle of church or at the end of church. So when you confess your sins, A weight is lifted off of your shoulders and you are set free from the bondage that sin has created in your life. Sin can paralyze you. It can hinder your worship of God. Listen to what David has to say about the sins that he had that went unconfessed. So Psalm 33, three through five says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I pray that as you go through your life, that you can find ways to worship God the way he intended. Because just like David said, unconfessed sins weigh you down. They cause you to feel anguish and pain and sorrow. And God's hand is heavy on those who are in sin. So if you came into this place feeling like you just can't experience worship, maybe there's a sin in your life that has gone unconfessed, that needs confession. And I would challenge you to think about that and look for that sin in your life. Because once you confess your sin, you're able to worship God the way that he intended it. So worship. Worship is our expression of adoration and reverence to God. Worship is something that is born out of our love that we grow in for God. So when you worship, you have a shift in who you are as a person. And when we understand our need for confession, you will change as a person, like repentance. 
When you repent of your sins, you're turning away from the sin you were living in and changing to follow the way that God would intend you to go. And when you can do that, then your worship becomes more intimate with God and is more noticeable in those around you. So in response, again, of their three hours of reading, Israel spent the next three hours confessing their sins and worshiping God. Worship cannot be done, though, without the word of God revealing our wickedness and our need for confession. As we see with Israel, genuine confession drives you into deeper and more enjoyable worship. When you see your need for God, you're drawn to worship him with great joy. So Israel, at the sound of the word of God, dropped to the ground in weeping, mourning, and sorrow. When we realize how great our God is and how unworthy of our love we are, or of his love we are, it should bring you to your knees in worship. But the Levite leaders did not want them to be full of sorrow and guilt because they knew that the Lord would set them free from their sins. They told them to stand and praise God from everlasting to everlasting because he is exalted above all. The Lord is the only God, the one who made the heavens and everything that's in it and everything in creation points to who God is. But the praise doesn't stop at verse six. Like I said, from 9, 6 through 31, there is so much of praise towards God and his attributes and what we know about who God is. So in Nehemiah 9, 17, at the end of the verse, it says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. So a few things that I'm going to point out to you from what I've found from 9, 6 through 31, that are ways that we can worship God because of who he is. So number one is God is ready to forgive. There is nothing you can do in your own merit, in your own skill, in your own good works to bring you to the point where God will forgive you. We don't stack up, but God is ready to forgive no matter what sins you've committed. God is gracious meaning that his grace makes it possible for him to confront our human indifference and rebellion and wickedness with love and blessing and forgiveness. This is made possible by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three, we also see that God is merciful. He keeps his promises and maintains his covenant relationship with his chosen people. Even when we are unworthy, unfaithful, and broken. God still loves us and keeps his covenant with us. Four, God is abounding in steadfast love, meaning his love will never fail. There will never be a time when God's love just stops. God's love is constant and is never ending. God will not forsake you. God will not abandon you in the dark. Like Pastor Tim spoke on last week, even if we don't see God at work, he's working behind the scenes. And maybe for you today, you're wondering, is God even at work in me? And you might not see that, but behind the scenes, God is at work. Six, God will not withhold himself from you. He is the bread of life. He is the thirst you have longed for. John 6, 35 says, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Please do not fall into the traps that the world sets for you, that tells you that other things will fulfill your hunger. That hunger, that thing you crave, when you always want what's best, it's not something of this world like the world is constantly telling you. It's God. You won't be fulfilled until you realize that the only way to gain fulfillment is in God. So when I was thinking about confession and worship and kind of how those connect, and Pastor Josh and I were sitting there kind of working through this, and we thought of the Hoover Dam. So in 1936, the Hoover Dam was completed. It was 726 feet high, 650 feet thick at the bottom, and 45 feet thick at the top. Now, the purpose of the Hoover Dam was for flood control, irrigation, and electricity, power, and many other things along with that. But let's imagine that the Colorado River was our only source of water. And so when the dam is built, our water supply is cut off. But if we needed that water, what do you think would happen if somehow we had a way of just grabbing that block and removing it? Right? The water would come rushing down uncontrollably, super loudly, and everyone would notice it. That's what our worship should look like. Your sin is that dam that's blocking your worship as it's flowing down. And when that's removed, you can finally worship God the way that it's intended to be. So can you remember a time in your life where you had to confess a sin that maybe was a struggle for you? But the moment you confess that sin, it honestly felt like that dam was removed and your worship was just flowing from you. That's exactly what worship is intended to be. But maybe you sit here and you're wondering, well, this just doesn't seem to make sense for me. Well, let me try to offer you some encouragement. Your story isn't over. Even if you feel like you're broken or unworthy of God's love, Jesus died on the cross so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your brokenness. He doesn't see your unworthiness, but he sees his son. Jesus is the rebuilder of the broken. While it is true that there is nothing inherently good about us to make it possible for us to spend eternity with Christ, like in our own merit, we cannot make it to Christ. But Jesus' death makes that possible for us. My challenge to you is as we close for today and get ready to go through this week, a couple things. One, what role does the Bible play in your life? How do you, where, when do you read the Bible? How do you read the Bible? Do you know that they say only 18% of professing Christians read their Bible every day? 18%. And if that's not alarming enough, they say 23% of professing Christians claim to never read the Bible. The lack of desire for God's word points to the fact that that we as professing Christians may not understand the full weight of the word of God. What role does the memorization of the word of God play in your life? As I mentioned earlier, is it something that we just look at to just be able to say, hey, I, I memorized scripture, or hey, I had it memorized this week. But what role 
how important is it to you? Memorization isn't something to just help you, like I said before, in your time of hurt, but it's also something that strengthens your faith all across the board. So may it be true of us today, Hagerstown Church, that we are a people that's worship is noticeable to everyone that we encounter. Where the people around us know that there is something different about who we are. And that would be God, our worship of God, our understanding for our need of the word of God, confession, and worship. So as I pray and close, um, just also want to encourage you to just kind of think in what ways do you have a sin that's weighing you down and blocking your worship? And maybe spend some time confessing that. Let's pray. God, I'm just thankful for the fact that we have a chance to worship you and praise you and just spend time around your word. And Lord, thank you for, for choosing me today to open your word and explain it. And God, there's nothing good in me apart from you. There's nothing good in any of us apart from you. And I pray that we see that and that we live in that. And Lord, as, as we sit here and just think about what ways have we sinned against you, I just pray that you bring something to them, just a sin that is weighing them down that they don't realize, or a sin that's holding them back from worshiping you the way that you intended it. And God, same for me. I know there are so many ways that I forget about your love for me. And God, I just pray that as we close today, that we are just in awe of who you are and your steadfast love that you are constantly, constantly pouring out over us. We love you, and I pray this in your great and holy name. Amen.